Um, okay, today uh, I'm going to confess to you I learned something this week that I have never known before. Uh, I learned about a misquote that I have seen a hundred times over. Uh, today is an encouragement to moms and daughters and women and teenage women. Some of the teenage young ladies in our church are amazing. They run sound every Sunday. I don't know if you notice that or not sound, projector. Um, and, uh, and then they come and read and I love it. And uh, here's the quote that I learned I have heard all my life incorrectly. It's the quote, uh, well-behaved women seldom make history. Have you seen that or heard that? Everybody's heard that before? I got the quote right, uh, but I didn't know who made the quote. I've seen that attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt. Has anybody ever seen that attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt? She is not the one who said it. I've seen it at Faneuil Hall attributed to Hillary Clinton. Have you ever seen it attributed to Hillary Clinton? It was not Hillary Clinton who made that statement. Um, it was actually that statement, well-behaved women seldom make history, actually came out in an article, a really not well-known article, by the way, from 1976. It was was a, a woman who became a professor emeritus at uh, Harvard, um, and she was writing an article about Puritan women from several hundred years ago and Puritan funeral services. And in the middle of this really unknown kind of uh, like, it was just an article on Puritan funeral services, she made the statement, well-behaved women seldom make history. The woman who made the statement, her name is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. I would have never guessed that. Like, if you ever see that as a Jeopardy clue, you're ready to go now. That was Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who said, well-behaved women seldom make history. It was not Eleanor Roosevelt, and it certainly was not Hillary Clinton. It actually was taken out of context as well while we're talking about the quote. Uh, what it's kind of become is like this woman who, you know, is drinking whiskey and like burning stuff down to kind of make the revolution. Like, well-behaved women seldom make history. Right, let's go, whatever. That's not what the woman intended. What she was actually saying was that... Um, that well-behaved women should have their stories told more frequently in history. Like she was saying, you know, well-behaved women seldom make history, and that seems unfair. Uh, and I, I would agree with that. I totally agree with that. She wasn't encouraging rebellion or poor behavior. She was saying that more frequently in history, uh, women who are good and godly women should have had their stories told. And I would totally affirm that. I would, in fact, even say that the Bible does that probably better than any other book in antiquity. Uh, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, if you read ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, if you read the stories of all the great religions of all, all around the world, very rarely do they tell the story of well-behaved women. In fact, if we're being honest, what we mostly hear in religious sort of documents and documents over the last several thousand years, in fact, are stories of women uh, who did not behave and were burned at the stake or killed. Like that tends to sadly be the stories we hear of women who kind of tried to flower and come into their own and were not treated well by history. And so well-behaved women seldom make history. I don't, I don't know, female or male, I don't know if you sit with this question. I, I sit with it a lot, honestly. Will I be remembered? Will I be remembered? Like, or will my life and legacy just kind of be a granite tombstone somewhere with 1977, a dash, and then some other something? I, I don't know if you ask, are my contributions being recognized? Uh, Mother's Day is one of those days where it's like, uh, 
you know, I think about my mom and we always got her some crappy gift. Like when we were kids, moms, if mom, if you're watching today, I'm sorry for all the bad gifts we gave you as kids. Um, but I look back now and I look at all the things that my mom did and how she wasn't recognized enough for all the things that she was doing as a single mom. And we can even ask that sort of at home, but we can ask that in all kinds of other places. Are my contributions being recognized? And, and then I think even this question is a really tough one that we don't often see with am I significant am I significant like do we feel significant do we feel like our life is making a difference and that may be for moms working women ladies but I think it's also definitely for all of us today like I want my life to count I don't want to just be here and then one day not be here I want my life to count and I know most of you if not all of you do to the introvert, like, I want my life to count, but I just don't want to be noticed too much while it's counting, right? So um, today, I'm going to tell you the story of two women in the Bible who made history. I want to just play a quick game real fast. Name two women in the Bible. Let's see how many of you, see if anybody can guess the two ladies we're going to talk about. Ruth, that's a good one. <laughs> Any others? Keep going. Esther, good. Mary, good. Lots of Marys. You can say Mary and like cover like five or six women. Judith. Who? Judith? Oh, nicely played. Wow. That's not one we're doing today. That's a good one. Any more? Who? Sarah. Sarah, good. Hagar. Hagar, good. Man, you guys are crushing it. Who? Hannah, Hannah good. Rachel, good. Agnes. Is there, there ain't no Agnes in the Bible, man. You're trying to trick me, basket. Like, yes, Agnes. It's in the book of First Opinions, chapter 7. Um, that's awesome. So today, uh, if you would have guessed the two people, I would have bought you lunch. But since nobody guessed it, we'll just keep moving on. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Shipra and Pua. How many of you have ever heard of Shipra and Pua? I didn't. Nick has, uh, because I told him on Wednesday who I was talking about. Right, so if you haven't heard of Shipra and Pua, exactly, I get it. Where are they? They're in Exodus. They're actually in Exodus 1. If you've got a Bible, you're following along and you're uh, on your phone, uh, you can go there. And then why are we going to talk about these two women, Shipra and Pua? It's amazing that we've uh, probably rarely, if ever, heard the story of these women. And, uh, and so today we're going to tell their story. Let me read to you Exodus 1. I'm going to read the... Uh, whole chapter of Exodus 1, except for, if you don't mind, the last verse, because it kind of begins to build toward the next story. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own, his own household. Jacob was a guy whose uh, God kind of changed his name midlife his, into Israel. And it's the, the Jews today were once called the Hebrews, the sons of Israel. And so this guy Jacob had 12 sons, and here's their names in verse 2. Three and four, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Jake, uh, Joseph was already in Egypt. That was one of his sons who was betrayed by his brothers. A lot of you have heard this story before. You've seen Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, and you know uh, with some familiarity this story. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So um, this is over 1,500 years ago. It's almost 2,000 years ago in antiquity, um, kind of the era where you get the pyramids of Egypt and all of the great buildings projects that are the ancient wonders of the world. And so Joseph dies. He's the prime minister of Egypt and, uh, and his brothers and all of them die. Verse 7, but the people of Israel, the sons of, uh, the sons of Jacob, 
were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This went on for about 400 years, went on for a long, long time. And uh, this is a lot of, remember last week we talked about the gospel narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And uh, this is in that fall era where there's slavery. This is part of the, the fall. These people are living in slavery for hundreds of years. And then the king of Egypt, verse 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, the other named Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, you see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? So now there's again, there's another gap. The, the Pharaoh says, all right, um, too many guys, they're going to overtake us. We got to wipe them out. And so uh, he sets this law and there's these two midwives. Presumably there's maybe several, but these two are named. Uh, they seem to be the ones who come up with the plan and, uh, and they don't do it. And so probably years later, uh, you know, Pharaoh's like, look, all the uh, 21 year olds, there's as many males as females. Maybe it's 18 years later, all the 20 year olds, all good, good ratios, 19 year olds, good ratios. Then maybe it was 18 years ago that he issued this command to Shipra and Pua and he looks and he goes there's just as many 18 year old males as females there's just as many 17 year old males as females 16 year old males as females Shipra and Pua we need to have a talk because this has been going on for years and so they come in in verse 19 and they said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. What a cool, uh, what a cool story. Definitely not like, um, it's definitely not like Vacation Bible School felt bored Jesus uh, kind of a story like the midwives, you know, we don't want to see that on the felt board like them delivering little Hebrew babies. We don't want to see them throwing babies into rivers or anything like that, but definitely an incredible story. We've got this power hungry, xenophobic king who then gives, uh, becomes in a line of power hungry, xenophobic Kings, and then we get these two women, Shipra and Pua. I've read all week were they Egyptian women who tended to the Hebrew women, or were they Hebrew women who tended to the Hebrew women? And literally, for every historian and commentator that I read, there was kind of like a 50 50 split. But here is what we know we seem to know that they do have Hebrew names. 
So I would think, I'm going to tell you, I believe that they were Hebrew women. uh, And then they were brought to the Pharaoh. Can't you just see these Hebrew women whose family members for centuries now have been slaves being brought to uh, the Pharaoh? I can just kind of hear Darth Vader's imperial march playing as they are being brought in before him. But it says, and he says, kill the sons and let the daughters live. And in verse 17, we hear that they feared God and they practiced civil disobedience. We hear a lot about civil disobedience today. This is one of the first acts in biblical history of civil disobedience. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let me give you a working definition for all the note takers today of fearing the Lord. Uh, This comes from a guy named Edward Welch who wrote a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small, which I would totally recommend to you if that's something you struggle with. Edward Welch said the fear of the Lord is reverent submission that leads to obedience. Obedience, reverent submission that leads to obedience. And so on this sort of the idea of fearing the Lord, on one end, when people hear the phrase fear of the Lord, I tend to think of thunderbolts and lightning. I tend to think of dark clouds. I tend to think of God on some throne and he's going to get me. So on one end of the idea of fear of the Lord, there's like terror. And then we would slide down a little bit and there would be dread. And then more in the middle of the idea would be uh, fear of the Lord would be awe and then over here might be reverence and over here might be trust and then the ultimate idea of the fear of the Lord is worship so God does not want us to be terrified of him or uh, afraid of him what he wants us to do healthy fear of the Lord moves from terror and dread toward awe and reverence and ultimately toward trust and submission and worship to obey the law of man in this story, to be awed and worshipful and even trusting of the Lord would have demanded that they were going to have to violate the law of man. Or to obey the law of man, the law of Pharaoh, meant that they were going to have to violate the law of the Lord. And they made a choice. They had to do it. And so, like I said, in 18, we see that years pass and Pharaoh sees all these males and he calls these women in. And a question that theologians, another thing I read this week, did these women lie? Do you read what they did and lie? Did they violate, did they commit a sin to not commit another sin? Like, did they lie? I I don't think they lied. I could see it being more like this. Have you ever seen like a cartoon where uh, you've got like the slow protagonist, it's almost like the tortoise, like racing the hare. I can just see these women kind of like, you know, up oh, Shipper and Pua, here there's, like Shipper saying to Pua, I hear there's a baby going to be born over there. We got to hurry over there. And then they kind of just cue the slow music and they're just kind of making their way there. And they're like, Pharaoh, these Hebrew women, they're so vigorous. We can't possibly get over there before they've delivered these babies. And that's what's going on. They're not lying. They're what Jesus said. Jesus told us to be shrewd to be shrewd, to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. And that's how we want to live as believers. We want to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. There's very little, when you live in a neighborhood that's essentially 97% of the people don't have relationship with Christ, you got to operate shrewdly, winsomely, 
carefully, strategically with your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, the other parents at the sports fields and all of that stuff. You've got to be strategic. And so we see in verse 20 that God, and I love this. I, I prepared all week and last night I was writing out my notes one last time. And I love what it says in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. There would have been a thought that the, the, uh, the Pharaoh was going to deal with the midwives, but it doesn't even say that the Pharaoh got to deal with the midwives, Shipra and Puah, it says that God dealt well with them and he blessed them and they were a blessing. Now, I want to do something. Nick led us in a song just a moment ago where called Good, Good Father. And I love that. That was actually, we didn't plan that. That was amazing that he did that because God is our father. The New Testament says that we're not God's slaves. We're not even God's servants. We are God's children if we've been born again and have relationship with God uh, through Christ. And so because God is our father, the scripture also tells us that God is our king. And if God is our king, then what would that make us as his adopted children? That would make us on some level princes and princesses who are going to be kings and queens. We are meant to with God. So today, when I refer to godly women, if you're okay with it, I'm going to refer to the godly women as queens. Uh, Coach Coleman's wife, Emily Hunter Coleman. A lot of you know Coach Coleman. Emily's been with us a couple of times this year for worship. She has a business down in Brockton, a salon called Fixing Crowns. I love that. Fixing Crowns because Coach and Miss Emily view women as kings or view women as queens and they want to treat people that way. And I love that. And uh, Christian women, I want to tell you, you are queens. You have Father God who has adopted you. He is the king of kings. He's adopted you as daughters. And so here's the big idea today. If you write one thing down, here it is. Godly queens don't back down to worldly kings. Godly queens don't back down to worldly kings. Godly queens don't back down to godless kings. Godly queens don't back down to worthless kings. Now, this is not a call to not be well-behaved. It's, it, it's to say that any dead fish can swim downstream. Any dead fish can swim downstream. That doesn't take a whole lot. Godly queens stand the tide of God, stand against the tide of godless culture and worldly kings. Now, there's a couple things I want to tell you about Shipra and Pua. They feared the Lord. It said that in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. These women, godly queens, fear the Lord. To be liberated from, from fearing godless uh, earthly kings, you fear the Lord. Godly queens, godly women Fear of the Lord. If you want to say what's the baseline for a godly woman, a godly Christian woman, it would be that she fears the Lord. Now, our natural bent is to make people big, whether that's somebody else, like I'm afraid of someone, or ourselves, that we have an overstated view of ourselves. We live in the self-esteem generation where like, we've been told so much that we're so awesome that we can't handle, like we don't have right estimations of ourselves. And so our natural bent is to see people as big and therefore God is small. The proper view is to see God as big and people as small. And the Bible is the primer and the Bible is the roadmap and the Bible is the fuel on the fire to help us have a right estimation of God and ourselves. It's the fuel for that view. Some people have said, man, 
We've heard a lot this year. I want to learn to read the Bible. I want to understand it. That's a good desire. Because as we do that, that becomes the fuel and the roadmap and the primer for a proper understanding of who God is and who we are. God in our lives will be big or some worldly king will. Whether it's a boss or a relationship or a thought pattern or a habit or an employee or a neighbor or money, both things cannot be simultaneously big. God cannot be big and another person be big. God cannot be big and a sin habit be big. Like there's only one throne and only one person or entity or idea can sit on it at a time. And the Lord is a gentleman. And this is the hardest thing about the gospel that God has loved us and freed us and he will not assert himself where he's not welcome. Like God has never taken me hostage against my will. And so if I wanna make money big, God will let money be big. If I wanna let a human be big, God will let a human be big. But there's a constant invitation to put him on the throne and let him be big. The second thing, like I shared a second ago, godly queens fear the Lord. The second one, godly queens don't back down to worldly godless kings. I thought this week about women in history who followed Christ and stood against some injustice or evil. I thought about Rosa Parks who... You know, we know what she did in the civil rights movement. I don't think we're told enough about her deep faith in Christ. I think about Lottie Moon, who was a missionary to China, and it literally cost her her life. And because of Lottie Moon and her willingness to go and share the gospel with people in China, uh, our network, our denomination, every year takes the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And out of that offering, all the international missionaries in our network, our denomination, their mission work is fully funded. They don't have to raise salaries because of this woman and her desire to share the gospel. I think about Susan B. Anthony, Evangeline Corey Booth, Joan of Arc, Sojourner Truth, Corey Tim Boom, Flannery O'Connor, women whose uh, deep faith in Christ, being understanding that they were godly queens, liberated them from fear of worldly kings. The midwives, Shipra and Pua, were in God's care. What could Pharaoh do to them? They found significance in God by faith. What could Pharaoh do to validate them? The fear of the Lord meant faith and obedience to a higher law. And even in our lives, when a king is not a king, like you know, our political situation and our culture has gotten so dicey that we're literally afraid of the president of the United States or what's happening 300 miles away when the truth is that's not our greatest threat. The politics are mostly local and my greatest threat is not even politics. My greatest threat a lot of times is myself and the mentalities that I fight against in trying to surrender myself to the Lord, our greatest threat may not be an actual king or politician at all. It may be a stronghold or something that conspires against Christ. A verse I memorized years ago in college, I was 20 years old. I memorized uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5 and it says this, it says, we demolish arguments and every pretentious idea that sets itself up against knowing Christ. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. 
the godly, the, the godly uh, fear of the Lord part of me has to take that worldly king, those worldly kings of pretentious ideas that are set up against Christ and begin to take them captive and stand up against them like these women did. And then we, the final thing I think we see about these women, godly queens are blessed and are a blessing. They bless, Shipra and Pua blessed other people. They blessed other people. I love this. They, they were saved, or excuse me, let me start with they were blessed. They were blessed. They were saved by grace through faith. It was that fear of the Lord that allows us to see they had relationship with God. They had received the gospel. If you're playing uh, sermon bingo, that's one of the words this morning. I'm only going to say it once. So if you're doing it, make sure you get that one. Uh, they received the gospel and they were dealt well with by God and given families. These women were blessed. This act of obedience, they, by this act of obedience, they were blessed. And also they were a blessing. They made a difference. They saved lives. They changed history. And this is amazing because I, I talked with somebody the other day who said, you know what? I don't like the Bible. It just oppresses women. It's just a book that oppresses women. This happened 1,500 years before Jesus was born. I promise you this was not a female-friendly society. And yet part of our salvation history tells the story of Shipra and Pua. Think about that. In the line of people, if you don't have this, you may not get to Jesus. Without Shipra and Pua and their courage, we may not get to Jesus. They are part of salvation history. They are a blessing. Now here's the irony. And I think this is amazing. I think this is the most amazing part of the story. Pharaoh is worried about the men. Pharaoh's so worried about the men. He wants to throw all these little baby men. He says, when they're born, look below the waistline, see what it is. If it looks like a man, you throw it into the river, get rid of it, kill, the, kill all the baby boys. And he says, let the women live. Pharaoh is worried about the men, but it's the women in this story who make the difference. It's the women in the story who make the difference. You want another irony? Uh, Pharaoh is worried about men threatening his rule, but it's two women that we remember. That's pretty incredible. He's so worried about the men usurping him as the king, but it's the women who actually sort of undo, begin the process of undoing his influence and make history. And here's the last irony. We don't even know Pharaoh's name. We don't even know the guy's name. History has forgotten this man so much that we know generally he was the Pharaoh around 1500 BC. But we're not even sure of his name. But you know what? We do remember Shipra and Pua. That's pretty incredible. We only remember a king of the, one of the most influential countries of the ancient Near East. We don't even know his name, but we know the name of Shipra and Pua. Somewhat, sometimes the one who seems the least threatening is the greatest threat. Your influence as a praying mom may be the greatest threat to the enemy's kingdom. Your influence as a servant uh, as someone who conducts yourself in purity while you are dating, or as someone who is a student of the word, may be the most influential, subversive thing, subversive thing that can happen. Uh, women here today, youngest to the oldest, I want to encourage you to fear the Lord. Don't back down to worldly kings or ideas that oppose God's rule and reign, and let God bless you and make you a blessing. Um, my mom got divorced in 1981 and I've thought often about what it must have been like for my mom growing uh, raising two boys in the early 80s in the Bible Belt South as a divorced woman it took a lot of courage it 
took a lot of courage. Man, God has blessed her a thousand times over for her faith and obedience and sacrifice. The Lord blessed her and has made her a blessing. Uh, if you go to my mom's town, it's, it's kind of annoying going to the grocery store with my mom because she'll inevitably run into somebody who's like, you know, you taught me algebra in 1975. I'm like, it's 2021. Can we just get this loaf of bread and like get to the house? Like, you know, she has been a blessing to so many and blessed so many. The most subversive things my mom did were not like, they were not these, she was trying to aspire to something. She prayed. She was in church. She got us in church. She loved God's word. She loved people. She taught us to live as a different people under a different king as members of a different kingdom. And it forever shaped a lot of people's eternity. I think about Mother Teresa's statement. We, we can do no great things, but only small things done with great love. Everything, every small thing done with great faith and great love can alter history. So women, as you pray, as you read the Bible, as you show up, as you serve, as you give, as you take a stand, as you fight for something, whether it's a marriage or a child or the unborn or the trafficked or the addicted or the victim, as you fight for something, understand those small acts can make a great difference. Now, fast forward from Shiprampua. Let's fast forward 1,500 years if we can. And I'll tell you about another godly queen who feared the Lord and she became the mother of Jesus. It was a godly queen who feared the Lord more than men, didn't back down to the worldly sort of kings and institutions of a day and blessed and was a blessing. But I want to tell you today that Shipra, salvation is not in Shipra, it's not in Pua, and it's not in Mary. And salvation is not in Moses, and it's not in David, and it's not in Peter, and it's not in any of the kings and queens of this world. Salvation is in Christ. Salvation is found at the cross. Salvation is found by grace through faith in the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. I want to encourage you to do two things, and we're done. One, I want to encourage you to thank, honor, and encourage a godly queen in your life or in our church. That doesn't just mean moms. I want to encourage you to thank, encourage, or honor a godly queen in your life or in our church. I, I, I think culture can tell you this narrative that you are seen and invisible and your life is not significant. I want to encourage you to push back against that narrative with one another. Uh, if you're a mom today, I want to thank you and I want to honor you and I want to encourage you. You are making a difference. Um, we are easing toward the teenage years and we are learning like, this is going to be fun. And it is no joke to be a mom. And the moms who are a little further down the road, you are making a difference and you are seen and valued this morning. Number two, I want to encourage you to cultivate in God's word, men and women, a fear of the Lord that fears no one else. Cultivate through God's word, a fear of the Lord that fears no one else. God will be big and people will be small or people will be big and God will be small. And then finally, I want to encourage you to live subversively. Live subversively. And the, <laughs> the most subversive way you can live today is not to go protest something. It's not to boycott something. It's not to be loud and militant or, or not well behaved. The most subversive thing you can do today is live by faith. We live in the most tangible generation of people of all time. And the most tangibly, like, if you can't see it, you can't believe it. The most subversive thing you can do is live by faith. Godly queens do not back down to worldly kings. Let me pray for us.